If you got a Bible, go to Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, and I want to take just a second. We got a lot of people that are new to Frontline over the last few weeks. Um, my name is Josh Curry. I serve as lead pastor, and we're one church with multiple congregations. So everybody that's new at one of our congregations, we want to welcome them and be grateful to God that God's growing the church and adding people over the summer. Um, the, the whole point behind having one church with multiple congregations is not a Christian version of franchising. The whole point is that the great news of the gospel is the most global and at the same time the most local movement in the history of the world. It's global in that it's this fantastic, awesome, powerful, reconciling ministry of grace for every nation, tribe, and tongue, and it touches all cultures, and it's for all peoples, and it's for all times and all ages, and so it's global, but it's also local. And as we're reading the book of Acts, what's going to be really fun is to just highlight throughout this book how many different communities are mentioned, neighbors and neighborhoods and individuals. And we don't want to just build a church and tell all the people that don't know Jesus to come to us. We want to plant churches where they live and where they work and where they play so that people can meet Jesus where they actually do life. So uh, Acts chapter four, and, and let me just remind you what's happened over the last couple of weeks. In Acts chapter one, two, and three, just fantastic amazing, miraculous things are happening. Uh, The resurrected Jesus is appearing to his disciples and he's coaching them and teaching them about the kingdom of God. That would have been fantastic to be in on that Bible study, right? For 40 days, he's unpacking what the kingdom of God is and what the mission of God is for the nations. And at the end of those 40 days, Jesus looks at his little band of friends and he says, you're gonna actually be sent to all the world to tell everybody the good news of what I've done But before you go, you got to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. And so they wait in Jerusalem in an upper room. They're praying together. They're spending time together. And Jesus, as the resurrected living king, actually sends God the Holy Spirit to be the power that infuses the church with life. And so he fills the church with the Spirit. And on the day that he fills the church with the Spirit, a guy named Peter stands up and he preaches this gospel sermon talking about the good news of Jesus. And 3,000 people are saved that day. So momentum is happening and life is happening and it's exciting and people's lives are being changed. And then we get to Acts chapter 3 and we're introduced to this guy that's had a really rough life. He's crippled, he can't walk. He actually is in a culture where if you were physically disabled, it was really unlikely that you could have a job. And so every single day he begs at the gates of the temple. And two apostles show up to the temple to pray. They meet this guy who is in a desperate situation and Jesus heals the guy. It's a huge miracle. It's an undeniable miracle. This guy has been a dude that could not walk in Jerusalem for 40 years. And now all the people of Jerusalem see him dancing and jumping and shouting and praising God. And then those guys get to stand up and preach the good news of Jesus again. And the reason I'm recapping this is because if you've only read up to chapter three, you might think as a good American that with all of that momentum and with all of that success, that the church is going to be super popular in Jerusalem. It's easy to read chapters one, two, and three and read it with this American narrative of uninterrupted ascending success, right? Like God is blessing them and the Holy Spirit's there and people are getting saved. So of course they're going to be celebrated. 
Of course, everything's going to go great and be easy because after all, we know Jesus is always going to give you everything that you want to be happy. And instead, Acts chapter 4 hits. And in Acts chapter 4, in response to all of this Holy Spirit momentum and the expanding power of the gospel in Jerusalem, in response to that, major persecution starts. And Acts chapter 4 is the beginning of intense pushback against the followers of Jesus. And, And I think as we talk about this today, that there might actually not be another topic more important or helpful for us as people wrestling through the claims of Jesus in our culture. We, we live in this really weird moment where what we've done with the message of Jesus is we've turned the message into pitch and we've turned Jesus into product. And here's, here's what I mean by that. What happens a lot of times in the church, and I personally feel the pull and the temptation to go here, is we've actually built this slick marketing campaign around the things that people want to hear right? So we actually want people to show up to church and we think, well, we've got to meet them where they're at. So let's be relevant by trying to figure out what it is that they want us to talk about. And then obviously we don't want to be offensive. So let's try to figure out how we can tell them the things that they want to hear. And all of a sudden what starts to happen is the church becomes better at marketing than telling the truth, right? And then tragically, when the church starts to become more interested in pitch than in gospel proclamation, the second thing that happens, which is even more insidious, is Jesus gets reduced to product. Here's what I mean. Um, Jesus is a product when we start to see him as a means to an end. And here's how this happens. Like, if you really need a spouse to be fulfilled and happy, then Jesus is the means to that end. And if you'll follow Jesus as a single person, he's guaranteed to get you that amazing husband or that great wife that you've always dreamed of and to make those dreams come true because after all, he wants your happiness and your happiness is contingent upon that spouse. Or we do it like this. Um, Jesus is this great product and if you pray the right prayer or have enough faith, if you're sick, you're guaranteed that Jesus is gonna be the means to the end of health that you really need to be happy. We do it with money all the time. And there, there's like the obviously scandalous version of prosperity gospel. I, I don't know if you guys ever watch TV and sometimes I do just because I want to practice cussing. And, um, and there's that version of prosperity gospel that doesn't trick that many people. It's like, yeah, man, I, that's wacky. That's goofy. But then there's just a subtle version of the prosperity gospel that we actually like to swallow. And the subtle version is, hey, of, of course Jesus is going to help you get that promotion at work and succeed and have all the things that you really need to thrive and flourish because after all, Jesus is for your happiness and your happiness is dependent upon these things. So think about this. What starts to happen is the message of the gospel starts to become a product that's driven by slick marketing to tell people what they want to hear. And Jesus starts getting turned into this product that's a means to the end for all the things that you need to be happy. So if you have Jesus, he'll get you X, Y, and Z so that you can have a deep life and a rich life and a fulfilling life. And the problem with that is it's just not true. It's just not true. And what starts to happen in the church when we turn the message of the gospel into pitch and the person of Jesus into product is we actually don't set people up to live in reality in relation to God or the world that we live in. 
So things get hard and all of a sudden the pitch that you were sold doesn't really make your life better. It just makes you continually try to form reality into the version of reality that you've been taught. Or Jesus doesn't get you all the things that you need to be happy and you start to become resentful towards Jesus instead of worshiping Jesus and having affections for Jesus. And see, what's so crazy is that at the end of the day, the great news of Jesus is not that he's a means to the end. It's not, hey, if you don't know Jesus, come and meet him today and he'll get you all the things that you need to have a deep life and a happy life. The message of the gospel is that actually Jesus is the end. He is the ultimate end and he is what a rich life is about and what a deep life is about. And what's so breathtakingly wonderful about this book called the Bible is that the Bible is really honest. It actually doesn't offer you a bunch of sentimental platitudes to try to get through life. It's really realistic about how difficult it is to follow Jesus in a broken world with a messed up body that's going to get old and get sick and with friends that are imperfect and sometimes without friends and in the midst of a culture that's going to not understand what it means for you to live a devoted life following Jesus. And so Jesus is really honest to his friends and and he puts it like this. He says, actually, there's two paths. There's two paths. And the first path is this really wide path and there's a lot of people on it. And that really wide path is really easy. There's not a lot of resistance on that wide path. In fact, it's a path where you're free to pursue all the things that you think you have to have to be happy. And Jesus puts it like this. He says, at the end of that really wide path with no resistance, you're actually going to be met with ultimate resistance when you find out that you've lived like you were God and like all of these things that God created were more important than God. You're going to have this terrifying reality check at the end of that path in which ultimate reality confronts you and resistance that's way more difficult than having hard relationships on earth is going to be the living God looking you in the face and saying, hey, you actually missed the point of everything. Jesus said there's another path and and he was honest about it. He said that there's a narrow path and that narrow path feels like almost continual resistance. It's difficult This is why Jesus described following him as taking up a cross. It's painful and it's costly. And sometimes people aren't going to understand you. And this narrow path is going to have resistance internally because I don't know about you, but a lot of times following Jesus means that I don't get my way and that's really difficult and painful for me. So there's internal resistance, there's internal difficulty, there's my own internal doubts and struggles and sins and temptation and flesh, and then there's the external stuff. There's the difficult people and difficult relationships, right? Like, I love getting to pastor this church, but I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that sometimes I thought about places with mountains and oceans and jobs that didn't include having to preach the Bible. See, Jesus says that this wide path feels really easy, feels really easy, but in the end, there's ultimate resistance. And this narrow path feels really difficult, but in the end, through the work of Jesus, there's actually infinite acceptance in the presence of the living God. Peter put it a different way, a little bit perhaps less metaphorical, not as much of a picture, but equally helpful. Peter says this, this is 1 Peter 4.12, beloved Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Like, can we just admit we live in this crazy moment where followers of Jesus 
who go through difficult trials, times of suffering and loss and difficulty, we get totally shocked by it. We're like, what on earth? Jesus, how dare you? I did not see this coming. I had no idea that you could be a Christian and have a hard marriage. I had no idea that you could be a Christian and wrestle with depression. I had no idea that Jesus could be Lord of my life and I could actually lose my boyfriend or my girlfriend over following Jesus. I had no idea that following Jesus might mean that instead of getting the promotion, I get fired because I actually have to follow the ethics of the kingdom in my life. I had no idea that following Jesus was not a guarantee that my kids were always going to obey me and rise and call me blessed every morning. And so what happens is Christians get totally shocked and our jaws drop and we raise our fists to heaven and we're like, how dare you let this happen to me? And Peter says to a bunch of Christians, hey man, don't, don't act surprised like something strange is happening. This has been the human experience of every single person that's been rescued by God's grace, living in a difficult world, walking out a narrow path, because it's on that narrow path that God actually changes you and uses you to advance his good news that's a news about reality, not fantasy. So Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is going to serve us so well today. Like Luke is so full of love for the church, and he's so full of grace by the Spirit to write this, that he puts pen to paper, and he captures what happens historically. Like He captures what actually happened in chapter 4, where instead of the city celebrating Jesus and these Christians, they want to arrest these Christians. He captures it historically, but he goes past just history and he actually gives us the tools that we need to process the resistance in our lives that comes along with following Jesus, right? And so I'm going to read this to you and then we're going to talk about the things that he points out that I think will help you because, hey, I don't want to be a bummer, but there's just two stages of life that are in our church right now for people. There's people that have suffered and there's people that will suffer, right? Like, Put that on a coffee cup. There's people that have suffered and there's people that will suffer. And what Luke is going to do as a leader in the church inspired by the spirit is he's actually going to give you some tools in your belt so that if you wake up Monday morning and it's not a day that feels really blessed and there's internal resistance and external resistance hitting you instead of freaking out and being shocked, you actually will have some sweet invitations to rest in the person and work of Jesus and actually grow through the resistance. So here we go. I'm going to read you verses 1 through 31. It's a lot of reading, but it's a great story. Listen to this. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, when Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Referring to the healing of the crippled man. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you 
and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I pray that people say that about us. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Like this is so helpful. It's so helpful because to be a follower of Jesus is to be on mission. And the narrow road that Jesus talked about that's costly and difficult is a narrow road of realizing that your neighborhood is an assignment from Jesus where he's planted you. And your job is a calling that he's given you. And your gender is an assignment and a calling that you're supposed to walk out for his glory. And your relationships, whether you're single or married, are about his mission and his glory. And what that means, quite frankly, is that all around you are opportunities to point to Jesus, to tell people about Jesus, and to live a life on purpose for the glory of God. And a life lived on purpose for the glory of God is a life that's going to get pushed against. So when you get pushed against as a follower of Jesus, and, and whether that's internal pushback from your flesh or external pushback from friends and neighbors or maybe a spouse that doesn't love and follow Jesus, 
What Luke is going to unpack here is such a helpful invitation to every believer going through suffering. So let, let me give you these things, and let me try to make this as quick as I can and pray that these go deep into your soul. The first thing that needs to happen when resistance comes is a reminder that God is actually sovereign. God is sovereign. And what this means is that when resistance to the mission of God comes, it's not like the yin and the yang, good and evil are fighting, and we just sort of need to cross our fingers and hope that good wins. Because of who God is, whether the resistance is through persecution or loss or physical sickness, as a follower of Jesus, we're invited to have the first thing out of our mouths in prayer be the first things out of their mouths in prayer. Look at what they say. This is Acts 4, verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then skip down and look at verse 27. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. So can you, can you look right here and just try, if you will, to put yourself in the shoes of these early Christians who didn't have 2,000 years of church history to look back on. And what they're experiencing is everybody of authority and influence is trying to crack down on them. Pilate doesn't like him, and Herod doesn't like him, and the Sadducees who were essentially politically in bed with the Romans who wanted to keep their political power and their position don't like them, and everybody's trying to silence them, and everybody with power is trying to come against them, and they are a pathetic group of people. They don't have influence. They don't have a lot of money. They're not people who can actually sort of politically engage the system and pull strings. They're just normal, average folks who have met Jesus. And now all of a sudden it feels like all of the powers that be are dropping the hammer on them. And so they have to pray these words. Can I just say, like, sometimes we need to pray words for our benefit more than God's benefit. And the first words out of their mouths are, Sovereign Lord. And what they're praying in that is this reminder that there's actually only one God. And it's not like he's pacing heaven when his kids get pushback in their lives, hoping that he can hold on to them through the midst of pushback. It's not like a follower of Jesus gets the report of cancer and the almighty God that created everything out of nothing starts pacing heaven nervously, hoping that he has a way to hold on to them in the midst of their suffering, right? Like when you actually lose a relationship because you have to take a stand for following Christ and people judge you and mock you and don't get it, like God's not pacing heaven wondering and hoping if history is going to work out in a way that's to his glory He's the God of history. And to such a degree that they actually remind themselves that Pilate, who murdered Jesus, and Herod, who sold out Jesus, who were both rulers, were actually not the sovereign lords of history, but who were bit players in God's predetermined plan to have Jesus go to the cross. 
So um, here's what I hope. I hope that this week for you is just fantastic because I love those weeks. I hope you wake up tomorrow morning and you're physically feeling strong and you sense the love of God. And I hope you go to work and just crush it on mission, right? Like I hope that you have incredible conversations with non-Christian coworkers about Jesus. And I hope that your neighbors get invited over for dinner this week. And through tears between second helpings of lasagna, they're like, I want to know Jesus. I hope this week is just a week of unbelievable blessing and enjoyment of life. But can I just say, if it's not, if it's not, if you wake up this week and it feels like the wheels are falling off and there's internal pushback and external pushback and it just feels like the narrow road is getting way too narrow and it's squeezing you, I just want to remind you that the sovereign God of the universe is the one that's working in history to hold you and to finish what he started in you and you actually with boldness can continue to follow Jesus knowing you don't know what the heck's going on, but he's got it. He's got it and he's got you. I I was talking to some single ladies in our church this week, just some awesome ladies that are uh, business ladies in our church and couple ladies that have started nonprofits in our church, and we just had a fantastic conversation about women's discipleship and women's missions in our church and equipping ladies to walk out the Great Commission. And it just struck me in the conversation just how difficult it is. I know it is for every Christian, but just hearing their particular stories of trying to be faithful to Jesus in the dating scene that we live in right now, it's really bonkers, both in the church and outside of the church. And to be faithful to Jesus as women trying to wrestle through what does it look like to be a woman and lead a business and be on mission and submit to Jesus and be a part of the local church. And one of the things that was so amazing about these ladies is as we got to the end, we were all weeping and praying together. And what was coming out of their mouth is what was coming out of the mouths of these Christians. What they were praying was, God, thank you that these things are not out of your control. And thank you that you're actually good in planning us in this city, in this time. And thank you that in the midst of all of these challenges that I'm feeling and all of the resistance and all the pain of not knowing how to navigate dating and work and Jesus and all the things we have in our lives, thank you that you're God and we're not and we rest in that. So friends, track with me. God is sovereign. And that's actually good news. That's not capricious news of a God who's burning people with a magnifying glass like they're ants. Like that's really great news because in his sovereignty, he orchestrates the coming of Jesus to redeem and rescue his enemies. That's how trustworthy he is. Secondly, not only is God sovereign, but when the resistance comes, remind yourself that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. So they, they pray this prayer. They say, sovereign Lord, and then Have you wondered what it is that they're quoting there? Have you noticed that in that prayer that they pray, there's a quote, and it's an Old Testament quote. They say this, why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Um, Did anybody notice that that's actually a quote from the Old Testament? So here's what's happening. The resistance is hitting these Christians and they actually do something that's so helpful for all Christians in every age of the church. 
they go to the prayer book of the church. Because when you don't know how to pray or you don't know how to sing and you don't know what the heck's going on, God's given you this book called the Psalms to actually put prayers on your tongue and songs in your heart when things are really hard. And so they go to the Psalms and what they're singing and praying is the second Psalm, which is this prophecy about Jesus who would be a king of kings. So here's what's happening. Think about it. The kings are trying to stop them. And so in their prayer, they're remembering that Jesus is not just their personal savior who doesn't really have a lot of authority. They're remembering that Jesus is king and Lord. Just as God is sovereign in his sovereignty, he's taken his son and placed him on the throne of the universe. And that means there's no king, no voice, no cancer No employer and no political system that's able to get the last word above and beyond the last word of the king. So everything's going crazy in their city, and they're like, what do we do? Well, we better remember God's sovereign, and we better remember Jesus is king, because that's going to help us stay on this narrow path when things are really difficult. And what I would say is, it's the temptation to freak out when resistance hits, and to feel the strength of the resistance as the last word in your life, right? Have you ever, have you ever lost a friend over like a good reason to lose a friend? Like sometimes things just go bad and you're like, I don't know what happened. You try to do a postmortem and you can't even figure out what went wrong. Like I'm not talking about that. Have you ever lost a friend over like the right reason to lose a friend? Like you, you, you've known that to really love them and to love Jesus meant that you had to either have a hard conversation or you had to renegotiate a relationship or you actually had to say, hey, I can't engage with you in the way I used to engage with you and be a follower of Christ. Or like maybe you lost a friend because you actually risked being bold about the gospel and you opened your mouth and told them about Jesus because you wanted him to get saved. And all of a sudden that relationship breaks and it just feels like the momentum of that loss is greater than any other thing in the universe. Or have you ever been so sick that it just felt like that sickness, the power of it to name you and define you and own you, it just felt like the ultimate power in the universe? Have you ever felt that? I've felt that. Or have you ever sinned in such a way that the next day you just had so much guilt and shame that you just doubted whether or not the blood of Jesus is even enough to forgive you, and it just felt like it was a tidal wave of power coming against you. Okay, that's what resistance feels like. And what these Christians do is they actually have to remind themselves that the Sadducees are not the king of kings, and sickness and persecution is not the king of kings, and temptation and sin is not the king of kings, that Jesus is the king of kings. And he actually is a greater name than the name of marital discord or the name of sickness or the name of loss or the name of grief or depression or anxiety. And so on the narrow road, when the resistance hits and it feels like it's too strong, what these believers do is they go up and they look at, okay, God, you're actually sovereign and you've got this. And Jesus is actually king. He's got more power and authority than this. Now, it doesn't end there. The the third thing that happens is this. They remember that the gospel is the power of God. 
So God's sovereign in pushback, Jesus is king in pushback, and the good news of the gospel is really, really powerful. Look at verse three of chapter four. They arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So think about what happens. The messengers get arrested, but the message keeps growing. The messengers get fought and thrown in jail, but the message keeps expanding. And the reason the message keeps expanding is because the gospel's not just empty news. It's not like, hey, uh, Thunder lost game seven. That's just news, but it's not really powerful news. The gospel is news that actually has weight and authority because it's the means that God uses to penetrate hard hearts and to call people from life or from death into life. And so what happens here is in the midst of the suffering, you can arrest the apostles and you can scatter the church, but what you can't do is stop the advance of the gospel. And here's why this is so helpful for us as individuals and as a church, like in your weakness and in your sickness or in your time of despairing over the pushback, if you're one that's actually by God's grace believed the gospel, the gospel is going to keep growing in you and taking root in you and changing you over time to look more like Jesus. And what's so breathtaking is even that friend that thinks that you're a wacko when you boldly talk about Jesus and how you belong to him and his life and his death and his resurrection, even when your coworkers don't get you, and even when they put you in the metaphorical prison of labeling you as a Jesus freak or as a weirdo or as a Bible thumper, the gospel that just went forward is actually the power of God for salvation, and you can have confidence that it's going to accomplish the great work that God sent it out to accomplish. It's the creative, active, living word of God that can change people's lives. It's the message of God's grace in Jesus. So can I just say a couple things right here? Remember in particular that this text is about resistance on mission. And mission's not just trying to convince your friends that Christians are cool, right? Like, I don't know at what point in the history of the Oklahoma City Church we bought into the idea that our primary missional responsibility is to convince people that we're not fundamentalist. Like, no, we're really cool. Like, like it's the gospel of cool that's going to change your life. No, Christians actually know cool music, and we actually go to cool restaurants, and we actually have cool lives and cool tattoos, and we go to cool places. And it's like, like can I just say, Mission is not trying to get all your friends to walk away and say, oh, I thought Christians were lame and now Christians are cool and now my life is different. Mission, mission is having the courage and boldness that these Christians actually have to explicitly ask for to open your mouth and with love and with compassion be willing to tell people the greatest news in the world, a news about sin and a news about atonement. Jesus came, and he's the life, and he's the light, and his blood is enough to cleanse. And the, all the things that we're trying to stuff into our lives to find satisfaction and meaning are not going to fulfill us, and Jesus is better. And he's alive because we killed him. 
Our sin put him on a cross, but the father vindicated him through a physical bodily resurrection, and he actually can grant repentance and life to anybody. Like, we need to love people enough to have that conversation. God is sovereign in pushback. Jesus is king in pushback. The gospel is the power of God for salvation in pushback. I'll give you two more really quick. Um, the spirit of God is actually present in the midst of pushback. Like the spirit of God is alive and Jesus sent him to the church 2000 years ago and he's actually still here. It's great news. So when difficulty comes and suffering comes, remember the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. So these guys are grilling Peter and they're putting him on trial. And it says, as they're grilling him, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, opened his mouth and began to speak. Friends, that's just what Jesus said would happen in Luke 12. Like, here's what Jesus promised. They're going to drag you before courts and before rulers, and you're not going to know what to say. Like, translation, meaning, reading into that, Jesus is saying, you're going to want to freak out. You're going to want to freak out in some of the conversations you're going to have to have for my name. You're going to not know what to say. You're going to be like, I should have gone to seminary before I had this conversation with my coworker, Right? I don't know, this person wants to have coffee with me and they're unpacking all the deepest, most painful secrets of their life and they're looking for some magic fix and I don't have it and I do not know what to say. Or they're wanting to talk about the reality of suffering and is God even real and I just feel like puny and dumb and have nothing to even give them. Well, Jesus said that was gonna happen. He's like, hey, you're gonna have in these particular moments to give a defense of the hope that's inside of you, but don't freak out in the very moment that you need to know what to say. The Holy Spirit will help you. And here's Peter. He's not an educated guy and he's being grilled by all of the Bible scholars of the day. These are guys that have memorized whole books of the Bible. These are guys that could write from memory massive portions of the whole Torah. They're grilling him and they're mocking him. And all of a sudden what happens? God, the Holy Spirit fills him, gives him boldness, and he's able to point to Jesus. And they're like, whoa, this guy's not even trained, but he's uncommonly bold. What happened? Well, he must've been with Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does to people. He marks people in such a way that folks are like, oh man, like you, you might not have been to Bible college, but I think you've been with Jesus. And I think what you just said helped me to make sense of meaning and reality. And I just saw the truth of the gospel because the Holy Spirit is there helping you. It's not your job to convince your friends of the reality of Jesus. Like you can't change anybody's heart. So just breathe deeply, chill out. You can't save anybody. But what you can do is be bold to trust that God's going to give you the words that you need and to engage in those conversations with confidence in the Holy Spirit. He will help you. I'll I'll give you one more and then I'll shut up. So resistance hits. They go, okay, God is sovereign. He's got us. Jesus is king. He's going to get the last word. Um, The gospel is the power of God. So we need to realize that they can't imprison the message. The Holy Spirit is actually here. He's going to help us in difficulty and suffering. And then lastly, um, we're not alone. We're not alone. So they get put on prison. They, they, They get kind of thrown in like temporary jail overnight. They get grilled by these officials and then they immediately leave. And the first thing that happens, look at verse 13 
Oh, I'm sorry. Look at verse uh, 23. And when they were released, what did they do? They went to their friends. This is such a great news. In the midst of resistance and pushback, one of the beautiful things about being a part of the church of Jesus Christ is the reality of spiritual friendship. So they just got mocked and they got thrown in jail and these guys are trying to bully them and threaten them. And the first thing they do is not go off by themselves to have a personal me and Jesus quiet time. They actually go to their brothers and sisters to enjoy the benefits of spiritual friendship. That's what the church is. The church is a family so that when one brother or sister is suffering, there can be spiritual friends that come around them and help remind them of the good news of Jesus and pray for them and pray with them. Hey, like I heard a story this week from one of our community groups in Edmond about a couple that just was going through really difficult things at work and at home, tons of suffering and loss and not know what to do with bills. And I just got to hear the whole story of how their community group engaged them and loved them and prayed for them and listened to them and met practical needs. And now six months later, the kind of traction and fruitfulness that's happened in their life due to spiritual friendship. See, you're not in this by yourself. And Monday, if things are great, you may not be aware of how badly you need spiritual friends, but Monday, if things are really bad, I guarantee you're going to be aware of how badly you need spiritual friends. And the way that we build those relationships is not when the crisis happens. They built those relationships in the upper room before the persecution even hit. Like they laid that foundation before it got difficult. So in closing, I promise you, as Jesus promised you, simply because he said it would happen, I'll say it would happen. I promise you, the narrow road is going to feel tight. If you follow Jesus, it's going to feel like a cross. If you're on mission, it's not always going to be easy. Resistance is going to come. Difficulty is going to come. But I'll also remind you, God is sovereign. Jesus is king. You're not. He is. He gets the last word. The good news of the gospel is the power of God for salvation God, the Holy Spirit, is actually here, and you're not in this by yourself. What's the result of all that? Well, it's verse 31. Listen to this. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In the midst of difficulty, resistance, and pushback, we need to ask for boldness, and we need to walk in boldness to keep remembering and keep proclaiming the good news of Jesus on mission. Let's stand up and pray.